that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Father, show the mercy that flows from the cross of Christ to allow a sinner like me to proclaim, to unfold, to lift up the most precious, valuable, and important message in existence. That your eternal Son bore our sins in His body on the cross. And to the glory of that cross in the name of Jesus who did it, I pray. Amen. This is part two of what is the gospel, the atonement. In other words, asking the question, what happened on the cross? Last week, let me just re-preach it in about 30 seconds. What we saw, but to make any sense of that, it's in a larger context to understand who God is and why He created anything, and in particular, humanity made in His image. The answer is, He created us for His glory. Which led to the second point. Therefore, we human beings, by definition, are obligated to live to the glory of God. And we all, thirdly, have failed. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only because we sin, as Ephesians 2 says, we are by our nature children of God's wrath. Which is the next point. And therefore, God, because of, this is the essence of His being and holiness, because of the love for His glory, He must go outward against all who profane His glory with pure justice. And thus wrath hangs over the head of all of us. And that is where the cross of Jesus Christ comes in. We saw last week it is God acting in such a way through the cross that He would save God-belittling sinners while at the same time upholding His glory. Not demeaning it. Or in short, the way Peter says it in our text, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus at the cross, we saw last week, is the answer to the biggest problem in the universe. God's love for His glory 
and His desire to lovingly save sinners who have so spurned that glory. Now, this morning then, the question is, how? How does the cross of Christ save believers? How is it that God could divert His justice, His eternal, omnipotent wrath away from us, and at the same time remain righteous and not unjust? And so the way I'm going to go about it, first, two big questions. And then thirdly, we're going to go to one of the most important texts in the Bible in the second half of the sermon and look at it. But the first two questions are this. First, how is that just for God to put Christ forward as a substitute for those who have sinned? And they call that just. That your sins just are wiped out. Secondly, well, assume that that's true. Well, how is it that that one person could die for the sins of untold who knows how many? Is justice being done? Let's start with that second question. How could the punishment which is deserved by all of us God-belittling sinners... Okay, here's Job. A lifetime of sin. Okay, maybe we can see this one person could say, I'll bear the sin of that one person. Well, what if I add a second person? Wait, wait, there's two lives of God-belittling sin. How could one guy... Satisfy justice. So, let's add 20 or 20,000 people. Why is it just for the punishment upon Jesus to have satisfied what all those 20 millions, hundreds of millions, who knows how many will be saved in the end? How could all the sins of untold numbers of people be paid for by one man who lived for about 33, 34 years and hung on the cross for six hours? How could one man pay such an immense price for the sins of so many in such a short period of time. This is, I don't know a better answer than this. It works for me and I see in the Bible. The answer is in the reality of who it was that bore the price. Meaning, the answer is in how much glory Jesus set aside and stooped down in order to make atonement for sin. We, in other words, need to understand how exalted 
this one person was who stooped to make atonement. For instance, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3 say, In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He, God, created the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory. And He is the exact representation of His very nature. And He, Jesus, upholds all things by the Word of His power. That's the one who is the substitutionary sacrifice. So the answer is, how could what He suffered be equivalent, that's what justice is, to all the sins of untold millions of people? Because He descended the infinite staircase. He bridged the gap between the Creator without beginning, without end, self-existing second person of the Trinity and creation. He Himself, the person, was never created. But a body was prepared for Him and He truly became in body and soul, one of us. That's an infinite gap. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. Although, talking about Jesus, although He existed in the form, it's the Greek word morphe, the nature of, of God. Although he existed in the nature of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's stop for a minute. He's not saying, Oh, I want to grab equality with God. What Paul is saying, this one who existed in the very nature of God, it's who he is did not regard His equality something to be grasped, meaning, I am going to refuse to take to myself humanity. He didn't do that. He, the second person of the Holy Trinity, did not say, no! This is what He means. Let me me read it again, see if you hear it, because He's going to say what He means. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard his equality to God with a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The answer of the atonement of Christ is not merely the cross. It is central. 
Without it, there is no atonement. But it begins with His incarnation. When the Holy Spirit came over Mary and implanted the second person of the Trinity in her womb. And He was born not in the castle, but in a stable. They lay Him in a feeding trough. And His parents had to rush out of Bethlehem and get to Egypt. And then He was brought back to Nazareth. He was trained as an apprentice in a blue-collar profession of carpentry. And then, after numbers of three, four years of ministry, one of His closest associates betrayed Him for 30 pieces of silver. And another denied even knowing before His crucifixion. And he was spit on by sinners. By those who He created. He was slugged in the face and mocked with words and tortured on a Roman cross. And God the Father you forsaken me that's the answer of why what he bore was more than sufficient for ten zillions of human beings who sinned billions of times second question okay just, just, how is it just for any person to be a substitute for a criminal and take their punishment? See, the state of California would not allow a mother to be executed in the stead of her murderous son. And you wouldn't want that to happen. Why? Well, see, the state of California versus John Doe the murderer means, the state of California means the law-abiding people. That's why it's the people versus so-and-so. The state, its essence, its purpose, its being, now hear it, its glory, is for the good of the people who have been so damaged by the criminal. Thus the glory of the state is at stake. And thus the glory of the state of California cannot be indifferent. I don't don't care who dies, someone's got to die. The mother who can't bear to see her son will care more about your feelings then we will about the people. That is the glory of the state. The state of California cannot do that. It would be unjust. It would be demeaning. It's glory, which is the good of the people. It must uphold its glory 
by enacting a just recompense in punishment. That's what justice is. That's why it's unjust to execute you if you're overparked in a one-hour parking spot and it's been an hour and 20 minutes and a cop gave you a ticket. It's unjust to put you to death. But there's some form of justice because you deprived a little bit of happiness from the people who also want to use that spot to do some business downtown. And so where's justice? It's, I don't know. We're always trying to figure it out. 35 bucks might do it. Hurt <laughs> some more than others. And this person premeditatively snuffed out the life of this guy's daughter, her daughter, grandparents' daughter, brother and sister's sibling. And you're, you're going to be indifferent to that criminal? You, you would allow a mother... Which, look, we all understand this. Don't criticize mothers who are in a position like this. But, but the state can't do that because it would be saying, we, the state, care more about the feelings of a particular mother than we do about the glory of the state of California. We care more about restoring the reputation of this criminal, this murderer, the mother die, you go free, than we do about the purpose and the essence of the existence of the state. Okay? But now, though, we read the Bible, and it's crystal clear that Jesus is executed, punished, as a substitute for guilty sinners. And the result is, the guilty sinner for whom he's punished, go free. They are acquitted. How is that just? The answer is in the motivation that drove Jesus to be the substitute. His motive was not like the mother because of motherly attachments. I feel so much pity on my boy. And thus she couldn't care less about the glory of the state. His motive was and is first and foremost the upholding of the essence, the purpose, the glory of God in His substitutionary sacrifice. His ultimate foundational purpose was not to restore our ruined reputation. That's not the cross. Listen to how Jesus spoke. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 27 to 28, He says... Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What He knows is going to happen on the cross. His answer is no. 
but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. That's what He's doing. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. In John 13.31, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And God, and if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him. That is Jesus in Himself and will glorify Him. Immediately. The motive in Jesus' substitutionary bearing of the punishment of the state of God's glory was God's glory. The upholding, the extending, showing how valuable God is. By saying, it took God, the Son, to become one of them without Himself ever sinning and thus bearing God's holy, perfect, utterly controlled wrath towards sinners. That's why Jesus' sinlessness was so crucial to the atonement. Because sinlessness at its core means He always, without fail, did everything He did first and foremost for That's why if He would have changed the rocks into bread, He would have sinned. But He wouldn't do it. He lived in perfect humanity for the glory of God. His death was not to restore the ruined reputation of sinners, but His death repaired the blows that all we sinners have done upon the state of God's glory. If Jesus sinned, what that means is that He acted at some point disregarding the glory. He did not do that. That's why the resurrection is so crucial. The, the resurrection is the confirmation. He's sinless. That's how Paul, Peter's arguing in Acts 2 when he quotes David. Death couldn't hold him. And don't just think sinless. Because if you understand understand what sin is, all have sinned and fallen short of glorifying God. 
The essence of sin in Romans chapter 1 is we exchange the glory of God for something else. Jesus never did that. He was raised from the dead, meaning proof positive every move and every action of that human being was perfectly for God's glory. Thus, His substitutionary sacrifice worked. It verifies it in the resurrection. Now, if we understand what I said there in those last 18, 20 minutes, then I think we have an opportunity, maybe, to understand the following verses in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He, that is God, is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's such a familiar verse, but I think we might just blow over it. He just said... Just know your heart. Forget it. No one else is around during the week. You know how sinful you were before you came to Christ. And in His mercy, He brought you to Christ and you know how sinful you are. And He says, this is who He's writing to. He's writing here to Christians. This is not to non-Christians right here. Christians, be honest in your prayer life. If we confess our sins, here's your hope. And it doesn't sound Here's your hope. God is just. Thus, He will manage you. Always do this. Make sure you understand stuff. Say it in different words. He's saying, if you, if you are actually a born again person, if you have saving faith, who he's writing to, if you confess your sins to him and he doesn't forgive you, God would be unrighteous. Because he would be denying his glory, extended in the cross of his eternal. Son, because Jesus' purpose in the incarnation and in the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross was to uphold the glory of God and to extend it outward. God will not deny that glory. That's what he said. He just said in two verses earlier, verse 7, the blood, why the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, this is the only way to understand what took me about 12 years as a Christian to understand this last verse. I mean, I literally did not get it. It didn't make sense to me. It does now. The Gospel's clearer. In chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 John, a few sentences later, he goes on and he says, I am writing to you because 
your sins have been forgiven you. Here's the part that didn't make sense to me. For His name's sake. It's my sake! That's why it never made sense to me. It's for me! That's true. But not unless it's first. For the glory of His name. Here's the core of the mystery of the Gospel that's revealed. Here's the essence of the Gospel. Whether it takes us 12 years or 24 years, that we are really graced to just see it in Scripture everywhere. And that is this. It's the very justice and the righteousness and the glory of God Himself that is our salvation in Jesus. It is the righteousness of God that saves us. See, that statement there, if you know your history very well, it was that kind of stuff that Martin Luther would read back in the early 1500s as an Augustinian monk who was so aware of his sin. He drove his confessing other monks nuts because he would confess at infinitum and he wouldn't stop. And righteousness of God to him at times just meant, I hate him because all it means is I'm damned. And why is that? Because he was born in an age where the gospel was so lost in the midst of the church. And so he would read text like Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And it bugged him, and it bugged him, and it bugged him, and it bugged him, and he kept pounding and hitting on Paul in Romans. Until, as Luther himself would say, it gave way. I said, I saw it. Romans 1.16 The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So that's the question. How is the righteousness of God revealed in saving sinners? Because verse 16 of chapter 1 of Romans says the gospel, the cross of Christ, is the demonstration of God's righteousness to save sinners. This is what Romans is about. But I want to go to the crucial text in Romans and one of the most crucial texts in all the Bible now. Spend the rest of our time there. Just flip over to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 23 
to 26. Paul writes, all, that means everybody, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's look at it. See, there's a huge problem in God's mind that He puts in Paul's mind. And thus he writes to the church. And the problem in this text is that God forgiving, God belittling sinners who have at their core attacked His glory, God forgiving them seems like a miscarriage of justice. It seems like God does not take Himself, that is His glory, or His righteousness seriously. He's going to even say in chapter 4, verse 15, God justifies the ungodly. That's a problem. That's what Paul sees. And so he starts to give us the solution to the problem. And you see, he starts in verse 24. He says, something happened on the cross. A transaction between Christ and the Godhead transpired. And it's called redemption. See verse 24? We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word redemption means... Through the, there's a price. There was a ransom. So, so something transpired. Price is being paid. And that's what brings us to grace. is a gift that justifies us. Let me just real briefly. It deserves a whole series of sermons. But what he means by justify, he means this. We who are guilty before the state of California or eternal condemnation. It means that price has already been enacted. There is no more punishment. There is no more justice coming against you. It's been paid in full. And, and, and not only that, it's as if you lived your humanity just like Jesus. 
because it was that one human being's perfect humanity that God also attributed to your account. He gave or attributed your sin to Jesus' account. And He attributed Jesus' sinlessness and perfect obedience to your account. That's justification. And so he says, how does that happen? Through the redemption, through a price being paid. Okay? What price? What happened? You don't have to guess. Just read the next verse. What divine transaction happened on the cross? He says, we are justified by His grace. As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, what was that? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That was it. Now, that is an English word. Okay? So some guys, we know what it's... At times you might have to propitiate your wife. Because we have done something so stupid, they're so angry. How do I cool down the anger? The Greek word that it's translating is the word hilasterion. This is the word that was used in all the pagan cults. The storm god's mad, propitiate the anger of the storm god and the sun god. And we want our crops to grow. We've done something wrong. Sacrifice, propitiate, cool down the anger and the wrath. This is, where, this is how they use the word. Now, the question is, is that how Paul used it? Yes. It's exactly how he means it. Hilasterion does not mean merely the cancellation of sins. Or merely the forgiveness of sins. It means the forgiveness of sins that is based upon God, the one true God, truly having turned away His perfect, holy, control, anger from Job. A sinner. That's what propitiation. That's what happened. On the cross. That's why the English word propitiation is an excellent, the best translation of the word hilasterion. Jesus was the substitutionary sacrifice upon whom the righteous, holy anger or wrath of God was fully let go towards the sins of others. Yet on Jesus. And thus, He is appeased. Verse 25 says, Jesus was put forward as a substitutionary sacrifice who would absorb God's just wrath. And thus that wrath gets turned away from believers. this way. Because I don't want to understate what's going on here. And I don't think this is an overstatement. It only sounds like it to the extent all of us don't really get God. It means His 10 million degree burning hot perfect holy anger 
through Christ, it was cooled down to room temperature. So me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. There no longer remains a sentence to be given to you. Walk. You're free. Because of propitiation for all who would believe. Now, he's not done. This has got to get the point now. The rest now of verses 25 and 26 say why this propitiation had to happen. Quote, this propitiation he just talked about, this was in order to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It it was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He, God, might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So He just said... Why was why the cross? In order to demonstrate God's righteousness. Why did he have to do that? He says it. Because up to that point, he had just passed over sins. Here's our man's sentence. So, <laughs> that's a biblical problem. The, the Bible says that's a huge problem. Because if you understand God and justice, then you would understand that God's righteousness and His justice is called into question when He does that. His glory is called into question when He just passes over former sins. Because at its core, sin is unjust. It is unrighteousness. It is an attack on God's very glory. In last week's sermon, that was the tension that we're supposed to feel. God's love His devotion for His glory and His desire to save sinners who have so profaned that glory. And the point of verses 25 and 26 in Romans chapter 3 is that God seemed to be unrighteous and just passing over God belittling sins of peon creation sinners. Or just say another. What he's saying in verse twenty-six. I don't. Tell me if you this later. You think that's not a, a good restatement. He is saying God would have been sinful. He would have been unrighteous. He would have been unjust if he forgave sins without putting. 
Christ forward as the propitiatory sacrifice that bore the penalty and satisfied justice for those sins. That's what he says in verse 26. See it? It was, quote, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those are his two goals. To be perfectly always just. Righteous. He can never deny himself, which is the definition of justice. He can never do it, and he never will. But, at the same time, he's the one remaining just while justifying sinners. This is the gospel. The cross. Propitiation is the solution to the great tension of the world. That is the most basic issue in the universe. That God's righteousness is at stake in our sin. See, in the real world, I mean, in the way the world in reality actually is, that is a huge problem. Even though the vast majority of human beings do not at all feel that to be a problem. And way too many church-going people do not feel the problem that Paul is saying is a huge problem and at the core of the gospel of Christ. After all, people are basically good. So many of us in the church do not understand Jesus when people walk up to Him and say, Jesus, what's your opinion on these poor people over here on whom a tower fell and killed them? And He answers, you think they're worse than you? This is not me now, it's still Him. I I tell you, unless you all likewise repent, or unless you do repent, you all likewise will perish. We do not understand the sheer mercy it is that we're breathing. We don't believe it. We think we deserve it. We don't understand sin. Because we don't understand the one true God of the Bible. And to that extent, we don't understand the cross of Christ. But we can grow. We, we can all grow to understand this great message. So again, watch it. Let's just feel what created. Here's Paul. He says there's a massive problem. God put Christ forward as a propitiation because He wanted to demonstrate His righteousness. Why? Because He passed over former sins. What does that mean? It means you. It means how you have lived up to this point. The way you and I have conducted our lives calls God's righteousness, His justice, into question. 
Or Paul writes this in the first century. And I, okay, I'm, I'm not in existence yet. So he knows the Bible. And so you read in 2 Samuel. <laughs> King David, instead of being off the war, notices a really pretty sunbathing woman on another roof while he's up on it. He's king, so he has her brought to him. And it's another man's wife. And he commits adultery. And then he finds out she got pregnant. But her husband has been at war the whole time. And so he freaks out. Let's get him back here and see if he can sleep with his wife and I can cover up my sin. And it doesn't work because her husband is much more righteous than David. I ain't going to go make love to my wife while my buddies are out there dying. And David freaks out more. And ultimately, you know the story? He premeditatively has him killed. God sends Nathan the prophet and catches David in his sin. David is grieved and repents. And then Nathan, by the Holy Spirit, says to David for that adultery and essentially murder. God has put away your sin. Christ hasn't come yet. How can God do that? That's what Paul's talking about. (coughs) To the extent we still have and haven't seared the judicial sentiment, and we know kids have it, it ain't fair, that ain't fair, and you got it. That's not fair! You ever had any of your family members murdered? How would you feel? Okay. That's a huge, huge problem in the text. And that's why verse 25 says, Propitiation of Christ was in order to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because... In His divine forbearance, in the past, He had passed over former sins. In the context of the Bible and of Romans in particular, that's the issue. How has the glory of God been treated? And what is God's righteous response to it? Paul starts off, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is his whole argument up to chapter 3. And thus, all Jews and all non-Jews, Gentiles, we're all under sin and deserve God's wrath. It's crystal clear in chapter 1 and 2. And we've all sinned and for short. And thus, at the core of all sin, it is a spurning and a despising of God Himself. God Himself said to David at the same occasion about the same sins. Through Nathan, why have you despised me? 
<laughs> what are you talking about, God? I, didn't, I wish it had nothing to do with you. My sexual drive just overcame me. And I know I blew, but that's what was on my mind. And then I got afraid and scared. I didn't want to be caught. It had nothing to do with you, God. All sin, first and foremost, before it's ever a damage to another human being, is a despising of God Himself. A despising of the glory of God. The problem, when God just therefore passes over sin, and it's not dealt with judiciously, the problem is that God seems to not take His glory very seriously. He seems to not take justice or His own righteousness very seriously. He seems to be saying, ah, okay, so what if you... to me, the Creator... Well, I'm indifferent to it. It doesn't really, really matter. And for God to ever act that way, He would be unjust according to Paul. So listen to the Gospel. Hear it. God would be sinful. He would be unrighteous if He passes over your sin without letting justice come against it fully. If He passed over your sin without saving us in such a way that demonstrates the righteousness of His very being that demonstrates the infinite passion He has for the glory of His name. God's righteousness is at its core His commitment to uphold His glory. So if He ever passes over, just lets bygones be bygones, then He would be treating His own glory. As I just sweep it under the rug. If he treats sin is inconsequential, he treats his own glory, his own righteousness as inconsequential. And so the way that he upholds his glory and saves sinners is what Paul writes in chapter 3. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over previous sins. It, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might clearly be seen to be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's His goal. 
Verse 26, very clear. In the cross, God was seeking to bring together the tension of it appearing that His glory is not taken seriously in His desire to save sinners. And He said, therefore, Christ was put forward as the wrath-bearing substitute so that God would seem and be just and justify God-belittling sinners. There's your gospel. See, it seems like a contradiction because if God's justice were to be meted out upon me, that would mean my eternal damnation. Or it would mean... You can say this, okay, God just, I'm, I'm just not going to eternally condemn you. Well, then He would be unrighteous. And that's the problem. But if God, from His eternal counsel, willed to demonstrate the beauty of His glory and of His righteousness and the value of His very being, then He would send God the Son to propitiate, to show what cost it is to bring into my glory forever. In mercy. It would take none less than Christ, the Eternal One, to become a man and for me to show this is the price for you to be saved justly from my perfect, holy wrath. This is the atonement. This is what it means when Peter says, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. That means Jesus out of a love for the glory of God absorbs the wrath of God toward us which we deserved for our sins and He did it so that it would be crystal clear that when Paul's quote when we are justified as a gift can't earn it. As a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it would be crystal clear that God Himself in doing so is just when He accounts the unrighteous as perfectly righteous and forgiven. And this being justified, this having sins wiped away from your account, this being accounted by the Creator who never denies His glory. Have Him account to you righteousness is only for those who believe in Jesus. Verse 25 again says, Whom He put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That's why we believers here now in the next few minutes are going to partake of the body and of the blood of Christ as an external 
confession, as an external act to say, our heart is saying yes to His body being strung up on a Roman cross in His blood being poured out in death as my substitute. So if you're a believer, take the cup. Take the bread and hold it together. And as we do, as we sing and hold the cup and the bread, waiting to partake, let this cross be your meditation. Let it be your meditation through the final quotation from Paul in Romans. Hear the Gospel. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. He's made righteous before God as a sinner. But the words it was accounted to Abraham, they were not written for his sake alone, abundant grace, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. You see, God shows His love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, work in us frail. Only wrath-deserving sinners. Work in us the beauty, the treasure of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Work it deeply now in this holy communion of saints eating the body and drinking the blood of Your Son, saying, yes, I believe, for You have saved me. Oh, let us understand mercy and grace all the more to the glory of His holy name.